The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome back to Autism Live. We're really excited. For the first time on the show, we're welcome, welcoming David Scribner. Uh, David, am I saying your last name right? Yep, that's me, David Scribner. Okay. And David, tell us, we've got a really fun picture of you with your uh, thumbs up because we weren't able to get a picture uh, today. But um, thrilled that you're here with us. Tell us what your role is at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. I am a senior clinical lead manager. Um, so I'm in charge of running three offices. I'm currently running our uh, Santa Ana office, our Irvine North office, and our Anaheim office, uh, all in California. Wonderful, wonderful. And I know you're doing a great job doing that. So David is going to be answering some questions that you guys sent in for us. This is the segment that we call Ask an Autism Expert. And so David, I'm going to launch right in. Um, somebody said, thank you for the show. My son covers his uh, ears when he hears loud noises and when he's doing something bad and I'm redirecting, redirecting him. When I call him, he covers his ears. What should I do? Please help. Yeah, um, I think that's a pretty pretty common thing that we kind of see with some of our earlier learners and our, our younger clients. Um, I would look at this in two parts. Um, for the covering his ears when he hears loud noises, uh, the first thing I would want to do is make sure that we ruled out any kind of biomedical issues. Um, I'd have him go in, get his hearing tested, and make sure that there isn't anything going on there. Um, once that was ruled out, then we have a little bit more of a direction that we can go to. Um, we could also look into maybe seeing if he needs to have a occupational therapy referral to see if there's some sort of sensory issue there that they might be able to kind of handle and take a look at. Um, and once we got that ruled out, the thing I would start looking at is the behavioral aspect of it. Uh, I think it's pretty telling that he's covering his ears when you're redirecting him. Um, I would continue to follow through with that redirection. Uh, you don't find him escape redirection just because he's able to block you out. Um, and so we might need to do some other redirections rather than verbal redirections. Um, Can you give us like an example of what a verbal redirection would be, David? I don't. I don't actually no, know okay. that. <clears throat> no, that's okay. So, I mean, it, so, uh, I'm going to use some examples then. So, if we had a, um, if, if we had a client that was maybe laying down or playing with a toy inappropriately, um, getting some visual stimulation from it or something like that, um, and we had identified that as a behavior that we wanted to redirect, 
Um, a verbal redirection could be something like play nicely, sit up straight, um, something along the lines of that, where you're, where you're giving some sort of a verbal command to do something different than what that behavior is at the, at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, it's a pretty, it makes, it's a pretty good strategy to just block that out, right? If you're, if you're, if you're the, if you're yeah. the kid. Well, it's, equi- it's a, equivalent to when we see on, uh, you know, sitcoms and movies when somebody puts their fingers in their ears, when somebody's saying something they don't want to hear and going, la, 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 la. It's, you know, I, you know if I, I don't really want to hear criticism either, and if I could cover my ears and not hear it, it would be a very uh, adolescent uh, thing to do, but if it worked, why wouldn't an adolescent do it? Exactly. So... just got that you said I just had like an epiphany because a lot of times as a parent we like they'll be doing something that we don't want them to do so we verbally try to redirect them and 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 in the case of the child covering the ears or or child who just doesn't do it what it turns into in that moment I just realized this is that as a parent we then become affronted that they're not listening to us and we become the thing that becomes most important is the redirection instead of the fact that we were trying to get them to stop a behavior. And in doing that, the kids got away with it. I just got that, David. You just made my light bulbs light up. But what we need to focus on is that we're trying to stop the behavior, not necessarily listen to the redirection. I, I had an aha moment. Thank you. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly it, too. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about automatically reinforced behavior, and I think it's really easy to really miss what automatic means. Automatic reinforcement means that if you do it, it is reinforced. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, 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 is the, that is the big takeaway. Okay. Um, I did want to mention something else about this one, too, real quick. Yeah. Um, um, the, the caller also had mentioned that they would constantly plug their ears anytime they said their name as well. Yes. Um, uh, this, this, this will happen a lot when we're teaching certain skills. Um, and we want to be really careful when we're teaching things like responding to name and eye contact and stuff like that, that we're pairing with something really fun and reinforcing because kids do a really good job of learning that we use their name when we want something from them. And so they get really, really used to that. Um, and so a good way to, you know, really successful way for them to ignore or get out of doing work is to ignore their name when it's said. Um, so initially what we want to do when we're teaching these things is to pair that with a lot of reinforcement. So we say their name, they look at us, and then we give them tickles, we give them high fives, we give them something that they really want. And then they kind of learn, oh, my name doesn't always necessarily mean I have to do work. It can mean good stuff, too. Got it. What an important point. And then we can point. fade into doing more work. Uh, so make sure that... 
you know, just saying their name isn't always something that precedes something that it's hard or difficult or not necessarily reinforcing to make sure that when we say their name and they respond that we're reinforcing them. I love that. Thank you. Welcome back to Autism Live. We have a, a segment that we feature a lot of times on Thursdays, Ask an Autism Expert. And our expert today is Elizabeth Ho. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, Shannon. Thank you. We're so thrilled to have you today. Elizabeth, tell the folks at home what your role is at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. So I'm a clinical manager up at the Portland East location uh, in Portland, Oregon. And I help primarily running um, the center in regards to clinical quality. So I carry a caseload myself and do clinical supervision, but I also like to say that my main job is to supervise the supervisors. So I make sure that the overall clinical quality for all the kids at the center um, is up to our card standards and mentor and kind of groom new supervisors as they come in. Wonderful. And so, Elizabeth, we have some questions for you, and they kind of go in a series, and they kind of all go together. So the first question is, what is a 504 plan? The 504 plan was um, take, is taken from the 504 section within the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and that's a Civil Rights Act. And the 504 section dictates that individuals with a disability who participate in federally funded services, such as public schools, um, they have the right to access necessary accommodations within that environment. So the plan is developed with a school team similar to an IEP, um, but there's no restrictions on the type of disability like there is with an IEP. Um, so the students don't have to qualify with specific disabilities to get a 504 plan. Um, they can have any disability, and it doesn't require ongoing documentation for um, progress or growth. There should still be, like, annual meetings for 504 plans, but, again, it's usually less restricted. There's no age limit on it, and it usually focuses more on accommodations and modifications rather than specialized services. Okay, so just to deconstruct that, so would it be too fine of a point to say that an IEP is a, 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 a little bit more um, structured and uh, definitely if you have a child on the autism spectrum that you might want to look more to the IEP than to the 504 or does it really depend on the kiddo? It really depends on the kiddo. The IEP um, is more specialized and has more... Um, specifics on what type of instructions or accommodations are going to be given. They're very similar, and most of our families do tend to do IEPs, um, but the IEP, the 504 difference is that maybe that um, the child doesn't need such heavy intensive services at school to access the curriculum, so they would qualify more for a 504 versus the IEP. Got it. So the next one, my three-year-old with little speech, she has begun public school and is receiving speech therapy there. Should I seek more therapy for speech? And I and um, I don't know what you read into this, David, but we have a lot of families that uh, school offers them speech and they think that, that sometimes they will prioritize that speech as being more important than their ABA hours. That's what I read into that one. Did you read that too or am I reading in too far? 
No, not, 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 not necessarily reading it too far at all. Um, there's a lot of different ways to read into this one. Um, I, I've had similar situations where parents have gotten speech or OT through their school, and they're initially very, very happy with it. Um, I think the, the really important thing to look at there is when you are receiving these services, and it doesn't matter if it's from school or if it's from an ABA provider or anything like that, you, you really want to be an informed and somewhat aggressive of the consumer. Um, I, I, I really I, I cued into the part where they said that their um, child is three years old and doesn't have a lot of speech right now. And one of the things that you want to look for when receiving speech services from school is what that placement really is. Um, because one thing that schools will do a lot of the time is they'll do group speech. And group speech can be a really good placement if you're working on things like social skills, um, conversational skills with peers, and those types of things. But if you're trying to generate speech and we don't have a lot of speech yet and they're in a group placement, um, they're not going to get a lot of that one-to-one direct time that they need to really make progress. Um, so if you were thinking about receiving additional speech therapy, um, I think that would be okay. I think another big key there is the collaboration between all the different services um, because you, you might be getting really, really good speech in one location and really good speech in another location, but without that collaboration, you're not going to get that to be able to generalize to all the environments. Um, and I agree with you. It's also, with the, you know, making sure that we keep ABA as a priority too because although we're not labeled as speech, um, we are going to work on communication. That's going to be one of our major focuses, especially for a three-year-old. Um, so although we're not labeled speech, um, we still work on functional communication, uh, communication as a replacement behavior for problem behaviors. We're working on a lot of different things there, too. Yeah. Um, for a three-year-old, I just want to point out for people watching, for a three-year-old with autism, Speaking or not speaking, the, the recipe often is uh, that research shows that the most effective number of hours to do ABA is 25 to 40 hours of ABA. Schools right now are so threatened by that that we have seen countless cases where a school will say to a parent, well, but it's really a question of uh, quality versus quantity. And this is very disturbing to me because uh, I, I want to know where that study is because I'm not aware of that study. The study says that it's actually more practice. Uh, so, you know, that it really is the hours. And, and I feel that schools are doing this to manipulate parents into feeling that they should spend more time at school and less time doing therapy. There isn't a study that shows that that's the way that gets the best outcomes. It just If you find it, if you're aware of it, please let me know. So I always worry when a parent is, uh, has got a little one, especially when they don't speak, they feel like maybe they should be doing more speech. And speech is great. I love speech. But make sure you're getting the ABA prescription 25 to 40 hours. And I would tell you to do 40 hours and do more hours at home. That's what gets it done. Okay, so next question was how many hours should a three-year-old who is non-verbal get? Our ABA person is saying 10 hours is enough. And of course, that sets off every warning bell I have in the world. So a three-year-old who's non-verbal, um, how many hours, it, and it's, it's individual, right? But as a guideline, 10 makes me close to hysterical. 
I, I would agree with you. Um, you're exactly right. It is individual. The number of hours that we need to, to uh, provide for a child depends on what his or her own needs are. Uh, but there are these general rules, these things that we have found, either through research or, um, uh, or uh, what we found through the research, through the data, is that at that age, at three years old, particularly when you have a child who is nonverbal, we're probably looking at more like 40 hours a week. Um, sometimes we might even be looking at more. The best indicator of a good prognosis for a child, the one thing that we can control the best that makes the biggest difference is the intensity of, what, uh, of, of the therapy, of what the dosage is, you could say. And 40 hours a week, it is an intense program for sure, and I think many parents are concerned about that because they're thinking he's three. Why is he working a full-time job? But that's not really what it is. It's more like <clears throat> he has a medical need. Why would we not want to give them the correct dosage to treat that? Yeah. We have had um, an interesting dynamic here in the Northwest where uh, for a long time there were a lot of recommendations for four hours a week or six hours a week or this kind of thing. I know that um, you've had Vince Redmond on as a regular guest, and he's talked about this um, a few times, at least uh, with those of us here in the Northwest. And when CART came in and was saying, no, 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 what the research shows is that we need to be looking at 30 hours, 40 hours, whatever it is, a lot of families were, were shocked by this. But I think that the results speak for themselves. Yeah. I think that what we found is that 40 hours a week when you, a kiddo is three, especially if they're nonverbal, especially if they lack that most vital uh, skill set, we need to be getting down. We need to be pushing hard to get them caught up. Absolutely. Uh, it makes me mad for parents when they find out that people they trusted were telling them that four hours a week was reasonable. There is no study that shows, no, zero studies that show that that's effective. In fact, there is a study that showed uh, kids who were getting 10 hours a week and kids who were getting uh, 25 to 40 hours a week and it showed that the 10 hours was not effective. 10 hours was not enough to make a, a difference. We all understand intensity. It's the difference of if you go to the gym once a week um, or if you go to the gym every day for six hours, what you will, how different you will look in six weeks will be vastly, vastly different. And when we have a kiddo who is nonverbal, as you were saying, Nate, we, we want to give them their best opportunity. And so we look at the science and it says that that kiddo should be more in the window of at, at least 30 to 40 hours. And I, we've had Dr. Grandpichet on the show before who says, you know, that's how much you're going to get funding for, but that every waking hour needs to be an educational opportunity for that child so that they have the best chance of the, making the most progress. So uh, it makes me mad, though, when I hear that people who know better, who have access to studies, are saying to parents who wouldn't know, um, four hours. Because to me, that is just a funding thing. That is trying to give your child watered down I mean, if, if somebody handed you a prescription for penicillin and you know that you got to take one pill every day for 10 days and they said, no, just take it for two days, you would know that they were trying to cheat you out of what we know to be effective. And so it, I, to me, that's personal. If somebody is telling you that 10 hours is enough, I, don't, I wouldn't trust that person.
Hi, I'm a new BCBA and I'm struggling with joint attention with my new client that has a lot of self-stimulatory behaviors. I only have one hour a week with him and even though I have sanitized the environment and I bring in new novel toys with me every week, he's happy making noises and walking back and forth in a room and does not sit with me. I know you will know how to help me and I love the show. We love you back. So Peter... Talk to us about uh, when you want to work on joint attention with a kiddo who's doing all that self-stimulatory behavior. Okay. Well, I'm going to try to help. Uh, sometimes the answers aren't exactly what we want. Right. Um, in this case, I don't know that would actually work on joint attention because of the self-stimulatory behavior. The self-stimulatory behavior, really, you, you kind of need to have better control of that. Um, you know, as some of my fellow supervisors and I, we always talk about, I will deal with aggression, I will deal with tantrums, I'll deal with vomit, I'll deal with poop, I don't care. Self-simulatory behavior can be one of the most challenging things because it does really interfere with their development and their opportunities to learn. And it's hard to compete with. It's very hard to compete with. You need something very powerful, some super strong motivator to even, you know, get them to be motivated to do it. but. Even then, um, I've had clients where it's just there's nothing more reinforcing this self-simulatory behavior. So teaching a skill like joint attention may not be the best course of action right now. I'd probably start with just focusing on maybe simple eye contact. Uh, Maybe just look at an... I wouldn't focus on having them look at an item, but just try getting them to look in your eyes. Uh, Maybe using, you know, done anything from like a lollipop coming up to our eyes to I've done the googly glasses and then you start fading those. Um, that, you know, kids that like superheroes, they have those like those sunglasses that have like the Batman cowl and the Superman <laughs> quaff or whatever it is. You can get creative in that stuff just to try and work on the eye contact. The other challenge here is if you're only with him an hour a week, it's going to be really tricky to uh, compete with the stereotypy. Um, if you know, depending on the rates, you know, if he's engaging in visual stereotypy ten times an hour. One hour a week is going to make it a lot more challenging. So I'm not sure if it's just that you have an hour a week with him, and you're supervising a team that sees him. Um, but you know, I don't know if this person can get in touch with you again and maybe give us some more information and okay. kind of uh, guide them in that direction. But congratulations on being a new BCBA. I would definitely try and focus on the eye contact first, um, and and focus on managing that self-stimulatory behavior. liar what strategies can I use with him to start being honest he usually lies when he made a bad choice and almost always calls his choice an accident whether it's hitting someone name-calling not doing something he was asked to do by an adult his teacher has him write apology notes to classmates and teachers he has lied to but he continues to lie to get out of bad situations what would be a better consequence he also loses recess when this happens which he really needs and she says thank you very much okay um for this one i would really want to just make sure that they've done um the behavior the fba so the behavior assessment to find out what the actual function of the behavior is 
Um, so that's something that they should work with their team on to make sure that the consequences are in line with what the function is going to be. Um, but what I was thinking as I was reading the scenario is that the current consequence right now of him losing recess um, or having to write the apology notes might be giving him too much attention for the behavior. And so he may not realize that um, what he's doing is wrong. So I think what they should do is put in some more proactive measures and actually teach them that it's okay if you do something wrong and then to tell the truth. So the idea would be if he bumps into somebody, he needs to be able to say that I, you know, I hit my friend or I bumped into my friend and then be rewarded for saying the right thing because he may think that um, he should lie so that he's avoiding getting in trouble whereas the consequence is actually what's worse than him actually telling the truth. Um, so I think that that's what I would try with him, is teaching him um, that it's okay to be honest and to say what really happened and work on what, like, a, a truth, like the true and false thing, and then praise him for when he tells the, the right thing, even if it's not, uh, if you praise him for telling the truth rather than just what he thinks we want to say. So how I would work on this with him is introducing um, social stories with him. So you can do social stories or the comic strip story, uh, the comic strip sentences, so that they see the consequence of what we're looking for, and then also role playing the situations. I love this because our topic for today is thinking about what are we teaching, and this is a perfect example that if we if we are targeting that we don't want him to hit other people there would be mm -hmm. one intervention but if what we're working on is to get him to not lie if he hits a child and then admits that he does it we might even give him some sort of uh, you know break or reward or something for having told the truth and I think it gets really sticky for people they go well you know we're we're then we're rewarding the hitting something and it's got to be really clear in our minds what we're teaching what we're trying to accomplish and do you find that parents have a really a difficult time with that because I have a good I, I see it and I have a hard time with it yeah I think because it's easy for the child to say it was an accident and then if they say it was an accident that's an easy response to get out of many situations so if it's an accident, then, you know, that situation, we move on. But I, I do think that is what it is, is because it's hard to kind of break it down into little components of what we're trying to teach. So I think if you just kind of take a step back and say, okay, what is it that he was trying to say? How can we teach that? And then look at the consequences and see if it's really um, matching what the behavior is. There so I think that's where, like, the, the FBA definitely would come in handy and, I would just, my other point to this one would be just to really look and see if, um, you know, the current consequence is increasing the behavior or decreasing the behavior, so then they would know to make modifications to that plan. special education teacher on my lunch break. How much do we love this teacher? How can I get a parent 
on board with our behavior plan for her son. He's in the seventh grade. Mom reports there are no behaviors at home. At school, he has several. I know that mom and dad tiptoe around him and don't ask him to do anything because demands are a trigger. He runs the house. He's 12. He can get help at home therapy for one hour a week through county funds, but how do I get mom to see that her behavior plays a part in her son's behavior and that it needs to change? It seems almost impossible, but I know you will have ideas and thanks. What do you think? It's such a sad situation. I love this teacher. She's obviously got such a big heart. Um, I think that there's two critical components to addressing this. One is having that that come to Jesus meeting with mom and dad because it seems like what they're doing is they're just engaging in their own escape avoidant behavior, right? They're they're terrified to confront the future. They're terrified to confront their child's needs and their child's behaviors. So the first thing is to have like a really loving, nurturing, warm talk with them and saying, you know, these are, what are your plans for the future? What are your long-term goals? You know, do you want him to live independently? Do you want him to live in a group home? Do you want him to live with relatives? Um, we need to figure that out so that we can start preparing him for, for that life. Um, and part of that will be making sure that, you know, the world does not, as much as we as loved ones of individuals on the spectrum and special needs, as much as we want the world to bend and adjust and cater to the needs of our loved ones, the world just doesn't. Um, we have to teach our loved ones to survive the world and to be as successful as possible in, in our communities. Um, so having that really genuine conversation with the parents and saying, like, you know, what can we do to prepare him for independence? What happens when you go to the grocery store? What happens when you go to the mall? What happens when you go to the movies? Um, the second part going along with all of that is making sure that we're giving that family resources. You know, is there a respite available in their community? You know, are they are they affiliated? Are they um, going to the autism society meetings going on in their community? Like, who's their support system? For the parents, you know, because if the parents don't have that support system, they're not going to confront these these issues. Um, they really need their own. They probably need counseling. Um, you can try setting them up with social workers. Social workers are amazing at helping parents like organize their lives and, and talk about those long term plans and those long term goals. So I would say that those are the two really essential components: is having a conversation with the parents where you really force them to sit down and look at the future and look at the reality of where their children and child is going to be. And then the second component is making sure that we're not just like overwhelming them with all of this information. We're also telling them like, look, here are the resources and here are the people that are going to help you get there. And all of us are here to be your team and we're a united front. It's not us against you. It's all of us working together for the well-being of your child. I'm a pre-K intensive teacher for autistic three and four-year-olds. I have one student that bites his nails obsessively. He chews on the ends of his fingers until they bleed. He does this all day long. Every time I look at him, his fingers are in his mouth. He also puts blocks, cars, and toys in his mouth and chews on them. What can I do to get him to stop this behavior? So as a BCBA, the first thing that I would do is complete an FBA or a functional behavior assessment because before we can develop a treatment plan and a set of strategies, we need to know what the function is or why this child is biting and mouthing objects in his fingers. So that's something where being in the school district, hopefully this teacher has access to a BCBA who can help um, provide this functional behavior assessment to figure out what the function is. 
And some potential results of that assessment could be maybe the child is doing this for a sensory reason. It just feels good internally. And in that case, we would want to look for replacement behavior. So maybe um, giving that child a chewy tube or some jewelry to chew on instead of his fingers or giving snacks like carrots and cucumbers that are crunchy and maybe give a little bit of that sensation instead of chewing. Another option might be that this behavior serves an attention function. So maybe the child's trying to get attention from others by biting his fingers and nails. And in that case, you would want to teach that kid to gain attention by tapping others. In the meantime, while you're waiting for an FBA, that functional behavior assessment, there are a couple things that you can do. What I would suggest is looking for times when the child isn't engaging in that mouthing and biting behavior. And it sounds like it's happening really often, so it might be hard to find those times, but maybe even if it's just snack time. Okay, his hands are out of his mouth when he's eating. Um, that's something that you can build on and work on, and you would want to work on giving that child a lot of praise, a lot of reinforcement, a lot of good things when his hands aren't in his mouth, and then start building on those opportunities. Um, say, for example, the child doesn't put his fingers in his mouth when he's playing with blocks. You can give him blocks at other times and encourage that appropriate behavior if that's a time when his hands are out of his mouth. How do I potty train my seven-year-old? He will keep a diaper dry only when prompted to go to the toilet every two hours. He has no self-initiative to go on his own, even when I do not put a diaper on. He will just pee in his clothes. And so what advice do we have for this parent? The, the first and foremost thing that I always look at is what reinforcement do we have in place for this? So what reward are we looking to have for this child when they do initiate? So um, that is something that is a reinforcement or reward that we should be looking at that's only delivered when they initiate. So they shouldn't be getting it for any other time of day, any other behavior that we are asking them to engage in. And so the key too is that this would want to, this reinforcement would need to be delivered right after they initiate. Either it's when they walk into the bathroom, they're immediately getting the reward, or if it's something that we're asking them to say, such as go potty or I need potty that immediately after they use the words, they're getting the, re the reinforcement because reinforcement or rewards need to be paired immediately after the behavior we want to see increase. Um, sometimes this is helpful to be introduced to the child of what the expectation is with some sort of social story. So like a first person narrative of when I need to go to the bathroom, I will tell mommy and then mommy will you know, give me a reward and everyone will be so proud of me. That's kind of what a, a basic social story. Um, the other thing too is what might be helpful is leaving visual reminders up around the house. So having a picture of a potty and maybe even the words under there, I need potty to have in places where the child's frequently going to see it as kind of another reminder. Cause I'm assuming like all kids, they just get engaged in their, their day-to-day -day play and don't think about these things sometimes. Um, another thing to think about is definitely consistency across environments. So obviously your child is seven years old. He or she is definitely probably in school. So what are they doing for potty training there? And are they implementing the same procedures that you're going to do at home? Because otherwise, um, if you're not being consistent, there's going to be confusion on his or her part and not knowing when he's going to get his reward, what's expectation. So getting on the same page with 
with your school or with anyone else that's going to be taking care of your child is really important. Um, another thought too I had was if if reinforcement isn't enough or if the visual reminders aren't enough, another thing you could think about doing is setting a timer. So some sort of auditory timer that's going to go off on the interval that you want the child to go to the bathroom. So ideally right before they would normally have that accident. And then ideally then the timer kind of becomes your prompt instead of you as the parent always having to say, please go to the bathroom, it's time to go, let's go. And they would ideally over time hear that timer and it would just kind of be like, oh, it's time for me to go to the bathroom. Um, an auditory timer like that could eventually be faded to some sort of like maybe vibrating timer, like a vibrating watch. Or, you know, when the kid gets older, if they're still needing some sort of prompt dependency, you know, a lot of kids have, unfortunately, cell phones that you can set reminders on. So there's lots of ways to fade that to be more age appropriate as the child gets older. Um, the other thing that I think is important is probably looking at if we can move away from those diapers completely because having a child still be in diapers can be confusing to them because when they do pee, you know, there's no mess and it's just the diaper takes care of it. And I know you had said that the child doesn't seem to notice when he does pee in his clothes. So then we need to look at what are, what are the consequences that happen when he does pee in his clothes? You know, if he's in the middle of a preferred activity when he pees, then he should be removed from that activity and kind of encouraged to go change his clothes, put things in the laundry, uh, maybe even help clean up the area that he peed on kind of as a natural consequence. And that's obviously going to be something that's probably not preferred by this child. And so maybe that would help deter him from wanting to pee in his clothes. Um, if he's in the middle of doing something non-preferred, or let's say you're having him do homework and he doesn't like homework and he pees in his clothes, then really you're looking at potentially the function in that situation being maybe he didn't want to do his homework anymore and he wanted to get out of it. And so then you'd actually be looking at, do I need to make sure I finish the activity before I go change him so he doesn't learn that I pee and then I get to escape the task. was diagnosed with ASD at two years old. Since then, we put him in speech therapy and he just started OT two weeks ago. He will be three years old next month and within a year, he has made so much progress. Since two and a half, he's learned his ABCs, numbers, and shapes. His vocabulary has also improved and can easily identify many object, animals, etc. Although his therapy has been so significant in his progress, he is very attached to me and I have problems in therapy with parent-child separation. He will throw a tantrum and I will have to leave him by force. He does calm down a couple of minutes later, but it's an ongoing problem. Do you have any suggestions on how to break or make easier child-parent attachment? Yes, this is a hard one because obviously it's really hard, I'm sure, as a parent to, to see your child be so distraught when you're trying to leave them and you know you're doing something that's in their benefit, of course. Um, first thing would be always front load your child with the expectations or what's going to happen. And it might be that you can just talk to your child and say, okay, today mommy's going to drive you to speech and then you're going to play with Miss Kathy and then mommy's going to pick you up. In some cases, um, just verbally isn't enough and they also may need pictures, so almost like a little visual schedule. You could have a picture of mommy, a picture of the speech therapist, and then a picture of mommy again and talk through with your child, like this is what's going to happen and I will definitely, you know, be back to pick you up. 
Um, so sometimes just that forewarning really gives child this, you know, lowers the anxiety and gives them a sense of understanding of what's going to be happening. The other thought um, is potentially having some sort of transition item that the child could take with them either from the car or the house that they take into therapy that does stay with them since mom cannot stay. So something comforting, maybe a blanket, maybe a stuffed animal, something like that, that they get to, you know, that the, you as a parent can say, okay, you know, you're going in to see Miss Kathy now, like go ahead, take your special teddy bear and, you know, I'll pick you up later. And that might help ease the separation. Um, the other thing to think about, I already talked a little bit about reinforcement and rewards, is I would have the speech therapist or the occupational therapist have the very first thing that they do at, the, at their therapy session be something really motivating and really rewarding for the, your child. So then even as you're driving to his therapy, you can be saying, oh, when you see Miss Kathy today, the very first thing you're going to do is play with that Lego tower that you love to play with. And then you're getting them excited about the next thing they're doing. Love um, that. Yeah, love that, that. that usually really helps. The kids that I've seen dropped off at various card centers, for instance, they get so excited about the toys they're going to play with here, they eventually just, you know, say goodbye to mom, and mom gets to walk out the door nicely. Um, the other thought I had was also making sure that your drop-off routine is very consistent. So kind of deciding, you know, do you walk in? Do you put his stuff down? Do you hang out for a minute or two? Or do you kind of just immediately say, okay, bye-bye, I'll see you later, and walk out? And whatever you decide is the best method is just being really consistent with that so that your child gets used to that routine and that pattern and that should get, become, again, easier over time because they, just like with the visual schedule idea, they know what the expectation is. And then last but not least, kind of making sure that there's other times of the day or other times in a week at least that you're maybe practicing this separation. So hopefully, you know, as a caregiver that you do have other people that can help you out. So be it um, your partner, your husband, grandparents, somebody else that you can practice kind of leaving your child alone with for very short periods of time, just so he or she gets used to mommy might sometimes leave or daddy might sometimes leave, but they will always come back and get me. Welcome back to Autism Live. We have joining us on the phone right now, Crystal Fontaine. This is one of my favorite segments. This is when we welcome an autism expert um, to be with us and answer some of your questions. So Crystal, this is your first time on the show and we've had a little bit of technical difficulty, but we've got you on the phone now. Welcome. Hi, good morning. We're thrilled to have you here. Please tell our audience what your role is at CARD and, and what you do. Thank you. I'm very pleased and happy to be here. Um, I am a regional manager for the whole state of Washington. So I currently oversee about six centers and a few expansion sites out here. And you do a wonderful job. And I know your families up there just so appreciate you, as do I. Thank you so much for all the great work that you do. So uh, I'm going to launch right in here to some questions. My daughter, seven, with ASD, has recently started repeating her responses by whispering them under her breath. So if I ask her, what, uh, what do you want, juice or milk, she will respond, I want juice, but then she will whisper, want juice. 
Is this echolalia and should I ignore it or address it? Okay, so based off of what you're describing, it does sound like it is echolalia. And while it's, it's always best to address some of these extraneous behaviors, it's something that I think that can be easily shaped. And you can do this by having her describe how she feels about getting the juice or even by describing what the juice tastes like. So my thoughts are, um, for example, when she responds with, I want juice, and then while you're pouring it, to break up that pattern in that language, you can say something like, I love juice, or I'm so thirsty, or you can even say something like, my favorite juice is apple juice, and that'll break up that echolalia that you're describing. Wonderful. And this, yeah, wow. and this will help with more, um, this will help model more functional language and communication. And I think a key here is to generalize it into other activities in her daily routine. And you can do this by joining her in play and say, for example, she's playing with dolls or cars. You can say things like the doll's sleepy, it's time for bed, or the car's moving really fast. And the biggest, biggest thing here is just to make sure that you're reinforcing the variety of language because this will help increase that in the future. Okay, so we're trying to get in between, because she says, I want juice, and then she repeats the want juice. We're trying to just sort of interrupt that there by, by feeding words from ourselves saying, I love juice, or my favorite juice is apple juice. What is yours? So we're just trying to interrupt that pattern. Absolutely, because it sounds like she's She's saying, I want juice, and then immediately going to echo that. So it sounds like she has really good imitation, and she's imitating things that she's hearing. So if we're just being proactive in throwing in some of those variety of phrases, sure. then she's going to be imitating our language as well. Love it. Absolutely love it. I'm going to move on to the next. Welcome back to Autism Live. We uh, love this new segment that we've got that's called Ask an Autism Expert. Joining us uh, via a lot of different mechanical uh, technological things is Gabriel Meyer. And uh, Gabe, we're so excited to have you on the show for the first time. Tell us a little bit about what your uh, role is at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Okay, um, well I'm excited to be on the show, Shannon. Uh, I currently am a clinical lead manager for um, now a number of different centers. Uh, previously, I worked at our Santa Clarita Center in California, um, and now one of the, the roles that I've taken on is, because um, our family moved to, to Wisconsin, uh, I'm supporting offices in some of our high-growth regions uh, in Virginia, um, Maryland, Louisiana where maybe we don't have that, that clinical lead support in those offices and we want to make sure that the supervisors there are getting the support that they need, that the families are getting, um, the clinical quality oversight that they need, and, and uh, you know, just kind of troubleshooting any other issues that come up working with the operations team and, and, and those that are there on the ground in those states. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So, uh, Gabe, we have some questions that uh, some of our listeners and, and viewers wrote in, and I'm going to ask you the first one. Uh, it's, how can I know, this is such a great question, how can I know when I should start potty training my son? He is three and nonverbal. Yeah, there's a number of things that you need to consider at this point. Um, obviously, being three years old, the, the mom is... <coughs> 
kind of right to start looking towards potty training. Uh, the problem is, is that sometimes we want to make sure that the child has all the prerequisites necessary for potty training to begin. Um, one of the big ones is going to be, can this individual or this, this child uh, withhold their, their, their urine uh, and, and, and their bowel movements for long enough? Um, and so what you would need to do is you kind of need to make sure that you're, you're tracking um, how often you're having to change the child. And, and usually you're looking for, you know, at least, you know, a couple of hours they need to be able to, to, to withhold. The other big factor here is that this child is nonverbal, which isn't necessarily a barrier to um, this child being successful with uh, beginning the potty training process. The, the, the issue here would be, does the child have any sort of communicative skills? Um, if they're on a PEC system or an augmentative communication system, then we might be able to get them to uh, learn some of the indicative uh, procedures that, that they need to follow, you know, maybe maybe saying they need to go potty or pressing a button on their on their iPad that that, that indicates that they need to go. Uh, one of the areas you could start with this is just getting them to identify wet versus dry could be really helpful, so that way they can um, discriminate between those two things. But uh, yeah, ultimately there's 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 just a few of those prerequisites that that we need to try, and then and then yeah, if if your child meets that criteria, and even the the communication part of it doesn't necessarily even to happen if they're withholding long enough we can really start um bringing the, them to the bathroom on an interval uh and and uh, getting them to at least try to try to capture that moment where they are going to the bathroom while they're on the potty but but again there'd just be a couple of things we'd want to evaluate for your child first one of my favorite things in talking to autism experts uh, you know in the autism community and among parents there is this great fear um, that what if we aren't able to potty train our child and we all have these nightmares about, how, you know, one of the first things that was said to me as a parent, somebody, once my son, my son was diagnosed and somebody was trying to make me feel better and they were saying to me, oh, I have a friend and her child has autism and he's doing great. And I was like, really? Tell me about him. What's he like? Oh, well, he's 15. He's not potty trained yet. And I had nightmares about that, right? I was just like, oh, and I think a lot of autism parents have this great, great fear. But I love hearing experts talk about it because uh, you guys are kind of amazing in your attitude towards it, that you really have cracked the code on potty training, that when it's done properly and you guys all... Uh, you love the Fox and Azrin method because you know that it works, that, that really you can have great success with potty training. And I have yet to hear of a single child that they were not able to potty train. Some take longer than others, but that pretty much everybody across the board, I don't want to say everybody because if there's a medical issue, that can make it harder, but pretty much everybody gets potty trained and it's not this big loop-de-loop. -loop. So... Um, I appreciate you giving us some of those precursors to know when it's time, but I hope that everybody uh, takes a deep breath and realizes that this is very, 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 very doable for kiddos. Absolutely. And I loved your assurance. You were like, well, you know, and we, we can do that. I, I just love that attitude. Mm -hmm.